1: You just can't prove it's true. I don't believe, I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic primary school. I went to a Catholic middle school. I went to a Catholic secondary school. My head teacher was a priest. I went to a Jesuit school. And my parents are still Catholic. My parents still believe stuff that I think is utterly nonsensical. Can I still get on with my parents? Yeah. Do I think they believe stuff that doesn't make sense to me now? Yeah, that's fine.
2: On the one hand, our justice movements are saying, there's no objective truth. Christianity is wrong. But then they're coming behind us saying, but this is what you should believe. Which is it? Is there truth or not? Because on the one hand we're being told not to believe in truth, and then the next minute we're being told what the truth is. I think Christian theism is consistent and coherent with the world that we live in and the justice that we see.
3: Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that engages in meaningful, good-natured conversations about faith, life and belief. I'm your host Andy Kind and today we've got together with our friends at Aylesbury Vale Youth for Christ. They recently hosted a great debate held at St Michael's School in Aylesbury in the UK on the topic, does secular humanism or Christianity offer a brighter future for the UK? It was between the Vice Chairman of Humanists UK Neil McCain and Sarah Stevenson, a theologian, speaker and writer from the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Prevail Youth for Christ hold debates all year round for the schools of the area in the style of Unbelievable. It's meant to engage the students in the big questions of life and faith between differing worldviews where the students' questions are part of the dialogue. This debate is moderated by Head of Religious Studies at St Michael's School, Mark Smallwood. So let's join part one of the debate.
4: Welcome to St. Michael's Catholic School in Nailsbury. We will be debating the question, does secular humanism or Christianity offer the UK a brighter future? It's an appropriate day to debate this because it's the first day of Advent. So we remember that this country has a Christian past. Should it have a Christian future? Um, my name is Mr. Smallwood and I'm a teacher here and I'll be moderating the debate today. Our debaters are Neil McCain and Sarah Stevenson. Neil, would you like to briefly introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Yeah, hi, everybody. My name's Neil. I am the vice chair of Humanist UK, which is the sort of leading national charitable organization in this country that proposes a sort of secular, humanist, non-religious worldview. So I help run that charity. My day job though, because that's a voluntary role, my day job is that I am the head of religious studies at a school just up the road. Indeed, I, taught, I currently teach some of your year 11s from from last year. So I'm an RS teacher by trade, but I'm here representing humanism.
4: A fine and noble profession, Neil. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hello.
2: Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you today. I was a former head of philosophy and religious studies department in a school outside of Belfast. And I then got really fascinated by these wonderful topics that we are debating. I went and did my master's degree at the University of Edinburgh in the philosophy of science and religion. And I then moved to Oxford to study apologetics. And I'm now a full-time speaker for the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Apologetics just means that there are actually reasonable and rationality behind the Christian worldview. So it's now my job to actually not just defend christian theism but to actually go and advance that case which i now do professionally and it's nice to meet you today thank you can we just have
4: another round of applause to say thank you for, for coming <laughs> the format of the debate will be as follows in the first round each speaker will make their case in the next round i will pose them a few questions based on their talks and then the third round will be over to you the students to ask questions. So please do be thinking of questions as we go through. Fantastic. So without any further ado, does Christianity or secular humanism offer the UK a brighter future? Neil.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And I want you to begin by looking at this this photo, which I hope you recognize from earlier this year. It was about seven months ago, I think. And you can tell me who the guy sitting in the chair, wearing the weird clothes is, holding the weird sticks. That is King Prince Charles III, current monarch the current king of of this country, and the head of the established church in this country, which is the Church of England as well. I'm the head of RS at a a Church of England school, which makes my job very interesting because my charity wants to close Church of England schools down, but they pay my mortgage. So I'm on the fence on that one. Now, I love history. I love religion. My day-to-day job is teaching religious studies. I've just rushed here from a lesson where I was talking about arguments for the existence of God with with year seven. I'm really fascinated by religion. I'm really fascinated by history. And I thought I would be really excited by this event, but I really wasn't. I was captivated by the Queen's funeral. It felt like a real moment in time. And I thought I would have the same emotional connection to this event, this massive Christian ceremony that Billions of people around the world were watching. And you know I, I was bored. Bored stiff. I started watching it and then I stopped because I was so bored by the Christian liturgy. I don't know if you've done liturgy for your GCSE. The service and the rigmarole and the praying. And it just, to me, spoke of the past. It spoke to me of the past. I was like, what is in this, where does this speak to me? All this, all these strange prayers. and religious elements and funny men in funny clothes. What has this got to do with modern Britain? And to me, the answer was nothing at all. It completely switched me off. I don't know what your engagement with it was. So the motion that I'm proposing in answer to the question is that secular humanism has a brighter future in this country than Christianity in its institutional and its historical forms that really still impinge, like you mentioned, on our schools and on our government. Now, I understand I've got 10 minutes. I'm gonna be really quick because I think the most important part of this is that you get to ask Sarah and I some questions. But if you were bored by that ceremony, and if religion really isn't that important to you, or is personal to you, but really doesn't play a part outside of that, then I really hope you're gonna agree with me on my side of the debate rather than Sarah. But being a good debater, I'm gonna define my terms. now. Sir says he's defined these terms to you, but just to go over them, secular really means the removal of religion from society or the separation of religion from society. Now you can be religious and secular. You can be religious and say, actually religion should play no part in society. It should be a personal matter, but you can also more than likely be a humanist or an atheist and say, look, religion's not important. We should remove it from society. Humanism is a non-religious philosophical worldview where humanists like me just say, Do "You know what? There's not really much evidence for God. It's not an important question to us. We just want to get on with living our lives and being happy without the need for speculation about anything that we can't prove." So that's what secularism is, and that's what humanism is. Mr. Smallwood has said that you have been studying arguments for the existence of God, so the cosmological argument, the design argument, religious experience. I've missed some others, you're nodding, but I've probably missed them off there. So I teach those subjects as well, at A-Level, at Year 7, at GCSE. I find them fascinating. And Sarah, who's an apologist, has spent her time looking at those philosophical arguments and defending them, the rationality of them. And I think that's that's great. But I don't think, for the future of our country, philosophical debates to prove the existence of God are actually that important. If you find them interesting, great. But outside of the classroom, I don't think moving forward, they're going to have that much sway with people because you don't really come to religious belief because some clever philosopher from 800 years ago had a really good idea. I don't think that's how faith and belief work. I think actually people come to religion because their parents brought them up in a particular way, or they grew up in a country that was Christian. And that's why you guys are in a Catholic school in a Christian country, rather than being, I don't know, Buddhist or Hindu. Apologies to those of you who are Buddhist and Hindu, but you get the point that I'm trying to make. If you have any questions on that, I'm more than happy, but I just don't think it's very important. Like The Rock says, it just doesn't matter. Secular humanism is about freedom of religion. It's about freedom of belief. People can believe freely, that's fine. But as humanists, we just don't think it's that important, okay? And why does that matter? Any of you moving on to doing sociology next year, you might be familiar with this. This is the names that we give to the generations, over the last 150 years. Well done to those of you who have spotted that you are Gen Z and you, I think if I've counted your birth dates correctly, you're in the middle of Gen Z. Okay, so Gen Z, your generation, are becoming less and less religious, according to all measures, church attendance, marriage, everything. You're becoming less and less religious, okay? And that's because I think that traditional religion, traditional Christianity does not speak to you. Because you've grown up in an age of enlightenment and science and technology and these myths and these stories that have driven our culture and our society for the last 1500, 2000 years, no longer have the meaning and the value that they used to. You're more interested in going forward and not believing in these superstitious metaphysical beliefs of the past. I'd be interesting to hear what Sarah says about this. This trend is inevitable this trend is inevitable. Regardless of what we talk about here today, and we discuss, I'd be really interested to see your questions on this. This trend is inevitable. This is data from the the last census that we've got. A census is where everyone in your household, probably one person had to fill in a, a survey and say what religion they were, how many people live in your house, what jobs you do, where you live, et cetera. And if you look at the trends there, yes, Christianity is still a majority in this country. That's to be expected, given the religious history of this country but it's in terminal decline. People identifying as non-religious are increasing. There is an argument, if you look at the bottom, that thanks to immigration in the mid 20th century, post-World War II, and birth rates among Muslims, that the Muslim population is on the increase, but there is still a huge massive gap between Christians and non-religious in the middle there. Within the next 20 years, within your lifetime, this country will be more non-religious, then it will be Christian by definition. That's a fact. That's a fact. That's a statistical fact. Sociologists, David Voas, Linda Woodhead, Lois Lee, all the experts on secularism in this country, that's what the data says. And I think there's a reason why. And I'm going to move on to what I think your next GCSE topic is, which, sir, tells me you're moving on to looking at uh, ethics around family life. Okay? So here's some data which sort of shows where Christianity traditionally is out of step with the generational views that you guys hold. So, for example, this is taken from the British Social Attitude Survey. In 1994, 64% of people agreed that it was okay for a couple to live together without wanting to get married. Cohabitation, living in sin, Christians used to call it. 81% now hold that view. Eight out of 10 people in this country say, absolutely fine. You don't have to be married. You can live together. You can have kids together. Who cares? Christianity still teaches and the, the, the church that uh, this school uh, still says that that's wrong. In 1983, 17% said that sexual relations between adults of the same sex was not wrong at all. 67% now say same-sex relationships are fine. Same-sex marriage is legal in this country. This is the data. Abortion, there is now almost universal support in this country for a woman's right to choose. 95% are in favor of abortion being allowed when a woman's health is seriously endangered. 89% when there is a strong chance of the baby having a serious condition. Over 70% would defend a woman's right to choose regardless. What does the Catholic church teach? That abortion is murder. Okay, that's the official teaching of the church, but it's completely out of step with the generational opinions of people in this country and particularly your generation. And that's why I think and I think the data proves me right that moving forward, secular humanism has a brighter future in this country than Christianity. Thank you.
4: Thank very much. Sarah, your' 10 minutes.
2: Neil, thank you so much for your thoughts, and it's great to dialogue with you today and to be with you again, as I've said. It's interesting that you begin your presentation with the ceremony of the king. Why do we dress like this? Why have a ceremony? Why mark this event? And to me, it's because we are made for more. We have those ceremonies because we are initiating a king But why does his role matter in society? His role matters because he has responsibility as the leader of this country. And we as a country are looking to that moment to say that life matters. And actually the decisions that you make as a king will matter. So we as a nation are gonna take this time to think about this new initiation. Now, what I'm going to say about that event, I'm saying to all of us today, I think deep inside of us, we know that we are made for more not just the physical things that we see around us, but for hope, for meaning, for purpose that transcends just the physical realm. It's interesting to think about where we are going when we've had a few very interesting years. We've had Brexit. Should we belong to Europe? Should we have independence? We then were hit with the pandemic. And I'm sure you, like me, were affected by that in various ways. We are in a mental health crisis. We are thinking about where is our hope? Where is our purpose coming from? We have crises of wars all around our globe. We know that our nations are not at peace. I think we have an identity crisis as well when we look internally and we think about when you go home and let's say that you're not occupying your mind with all the kinds of things that you do. There is those times when you just think, why am I here? What am I here for? And so What I would say in terms of taking stock about where we come from to where we are going, I think very strongly that Christian theism offers us not only a coherent worldview that makes sense of the universe, but actually makes sense of those questions that we ask of ourselves. And there's so much to navigate ethically. We have some of the most humongous ethical decisions to make. Artificial intelligence, how should we relate to technology? Climate change, how do we look after our planet? immigration laws, because there's so many refugee crises as well as the freedom of human movement. And I think that Christian theism offers us a guiding way and a path and a design for making ethical decisions. Now, some people, I think, mistakenly think that Christianity is just about the spiritual thing in the future whereby you get right with God now and then your soul floats off into some spiritual realm. And this is not the robustness of what Christianity is. It's based on real historical events actually happening. And Jesus himself said, it's not just a future thing. He said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what he meant by that was, for your whole life, I am the way. I am the one to make sense of your meaning. When you are lacking hope, when you're lonely, when you're navigating your lives, he is actually the way for how you lead your life. Now, in the early 2000s, the New Atheist Movement, I'm sure that some of you have studied some of these thinkers like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and they come out with arguments like we shouldn't take Jesus and his claims seriously because science has debunked faith, that we can't believe both in science and in religion. But I want to offer you today to say that these claims are simply not scientifically true. There is a difference between the methods that we use in science. For instance, if you go to physics or chemistry or mathematics, are you going to pray to find the answers that you're going to do in those lessons? No, you're not. By all means, pray. But that is not the method. There is a rationality and an order and a way to do those things. But that is different to the metaphysical worldview by which we live. Science is not telling us why you should do the ethical things that you do. It is not telling you where you should place your hope. It doesn't tell you whether there's a heaven. It doesn't tell you whether there is a God. Science itself is not against God. It's providing us a way for us to understand the information in the physical universe. Recently, John Lennox, who was a a former professor of mathematics at Oxford University, he was debating Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is one of the most famous psychologists of our time. And Jordan opened up that debate to say, I used to be convinced that science had debunked faith, but now I'm realizing that's a worldview. That is not science. Science is giving us information. It is not telling us who we are. Now, in your generation, we are seeing some of the biggest advancements in justice movements. So for instance, through the pandemic, the real emphasis that black lives matter, that every life matters. We're seeing advancements, as we've talked about, in women's rights. But what I would say to you is, as we go forward in justice for the things that you care about, what is the foundation that actually makes sense of every life matters? Respectfully to my opponent today, if you go onto the Humanist website, it says mantras, think for yourself, act for everyone. We can use reason and we can use science to work these things out. Who says? Where does reason come from? How do we know who has the authority to tell us how to live? One culture says this, one culture says that. It's interesting that the United Nations in its declaration in article one says, every life matters. Does our world believe that? Does the world believe that every life matters? How is it that we think that we can just come up with a mantra to then say to the world, actually, this is what you should believe, because I'm just going to tell you now, I see that as a contradiction. I don't think we can say to the world, there's no ultimate meanings and purpose and design, but yet we're going to tell you what it is. So do we believe in truth or not? Because we can't have it both ways. We cannot say on the one hand, there's no ultimate meanings, purposes, and hopes and then come along with our justice movements and tell people what to believe. Like authority and moral obligation, it has to come from somewhere. You can't just expect people to believe that if you remove all forms of meaning. And when I'm presenting to you today an argument to say, Christian theism is robustly true, it's actually because in your justice movements, it's making sense of why every life matters. Why? Because the God who made this universe said you're made in my image. I have created you, I have designed you, there is authority, there's moral obligation and there is human value. This is a strong foundation in which to place our hope. And I began my short presentation today with you to say, we're made for more. All of us in this generation, we're struggling with our minds, with our hopes, with our purposes, with our meanings. And I think it's because we're finding ourselves out in the story that we're telling ourselves. Because I think on the one hand, your generation is being told there is no ultimate meaning and purpose and hope, but go and find it. And I think we're catching ourselves on to realizing that makes no sense. I'm living in a meaningless world, and yet I'm supposed to go and find this thing to make myself happy. That doesn't make sense. And so I'm saying to you, if we want a brighter future for the United Kingdom, It starts with us, it starts one life at a time to say, the story I tell myself matters. I'm not an accident. I'm not just a cosmic coincidence. I actually was designed, I am loved, I was created. This is my identity. Gonna finish with, because I have been going into justice a little bit here, the Old Testament tells the story of Moses, whereby he is in Egypt. He is deeply stressed by the oppression of the Hebrews. And he actually strikes out against one of the Egyptian slave masters because he's reacting to that injustice. He then has to flee the land. And when he flees the land, I'm sure you know this story very well. He comes across, the burning bush isn't consumed. He meets the living God. And it's interesting that now he's met God, he's actually got the power to go back to the very place of oppression and set the people free. And so what I'm saying to you today is, if we want a brighter future, I believe it is meeting the God who cares about the very things we care about. And this is where it comes from. We're made for more. Thank you.
3: Andy Kind popping back here since we're about to take a quick break. Our debate topic today is does secular humanism or Christianity offer a brighter future for the UK? It's between the vice chairman of Humanists UK, Neil McCain, and Sarah Stevenson, a theologian, speaker, and writer from the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Unbelievable have teamed up with Aylesbury Vale Youth for Christ, who hold debates all year round for the schools in the area, in the style of Unbelievable, meant to engage the students in the big conversations and questions of life and faith. In a moment, we'll return to the debate, but let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable.com at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media at unbelievablefe for x, formerly known as Twitter, or Facebook.com forward slash premier unbelievable if you want to interact on our Facebook page. So don't go away, we'll be back in just a moment.
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand-new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So, please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus's death, resurrection, and return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you.
3: Welcome back. It's Andy Kind here, and you're listening to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. Well, today, we've packed our bags and gone back to school to listen in on the debate between Christian apologist Sarah Stevenson and secular humanist Neil McCain. In this final part, the high school students at St. Michael's School in Aylesbury in the UK are able to put their questions directly to the speakers, so let's listen in.
4: So we'll now move into our questions. So to start with Neil, in your talk, you argued that Christianity is increasingly unpopular and irrelevant. It's in some ways quite unfashionable, but you didn't address the question of its truth, nor of whether it might be good for society. So I wondered if you could speak to that
1: for a few moments. So yeah, I think I agree with Sarah. You just can't prove it's true. I don't believe... I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic primary school. I went to a Catholic middle school. I went to a Catholic secondary school. My head teacher was a priest. I went to a Jesuit school. And my parents are still Catholic. My parents still believe stuff that I think is utterly nonsensical. Can I still get on with my parents? Yeah. Do I think they believe stuff that doesn't make sense to me now? Yeah, that's fine. Sarah finished her justification with a story from over 2,000 years ago about a figure that probably didn't historically exist and is some kind of composite character, Moses, talking to a bush that was on fire, but didn't burn that talk to him. Now, if you want to believe that story and you think that story is real because you think the Bible is true, I, do you know what? I haven't got a problem with That's fine. But you can't expect me to have any comment on whether it's true or not, because it doesn't make any sense that scientifically that can happen. So I, I find it really difficult as a humanist to deal with the truth claims of stories and myths that don't speak to a, a worldview that is rational, is scientific, has no evidence. Christopher Hitchens says, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I don't see many bushes on fire not burning. I don't see many people talking to me out of burning bushes. I don't see many people walking on water. I don't see angels existing or talking to me anymore. If you want to believe that, I fully respect, in a pluralistic, liberal democracy, your right to believe it. I just don't get how I, with a scientific worldview, can claim it, claim that it's true.
4: Thank you. It seems right at this point to get you to engage with one other, another a little bit. So, Neil, you've said that you think that it's unscientific and that there's no proof, there's no way to prove Christianity is true. I wonder if you could perhaps speak to that,
2: Sarah. Yes. Interesting, isn't it? I, th- I think, first of all, we have to realise the difference between regularities and patterns and order and actually what it means to have an open universe. For instance, I'm sure some of you might have studied David Hume, who talked about these laws of nature are these unbreakable things and nothing happens outside of them. But actually, the regularities in nature is only to say that when we observe them, this is the patterns that we should expect. It's not saying anything about whether miracles are possible. And in fact, If God exists and he is the designer and the creator of everything, then he as an agent can step into his creation and do things. So I really want to emphasize a word to you that I think is so important in this discussion. And that is the word agency. Sitting on my table here is a cup of tea. There is a couple of reasons why this tea is sitting on this desk. One is scientifically, we can tell you how the kettle bubbles up, how the heat works through electricity and enables the tea to become hot and all of this. But there's another reason why this tea is here, and that is because I asked for this cup of tea when I arrived. I, as a human mind, as an agent, have asked for it. When it comes to information in the world itself, I actually think there's a treasure trail of evidence to suggest that information is not just physical. Now think about it. There is a mathematical natural language by which things work. Where does that come from? Where does that intelligence come from? What is numbers? What is time? All of these things have to come from somewhere and they exist even beyond the physical realm. Even think about the information that's in your mind before you make it a physical thing. So for instance, later today, I'm gonna chat to my friend. In my mind, I have information that I want to communicate that I can bring into the physical world. There's like a treasure trail of signs to suggest that we're not just in the physical realm, that there's, there's invisible or spiritual things. So I would say to you that we're in a very information-rich world that makes sense of theism.
4: Did you want to respond to that or move on to the ethical side of things?
1: Uh, I, ju- I just wanted to pick up on this sort of, there's, there's a, this sort of def- defense of the supernatural. and. Sarah talked about this idea that sort of science cannot tell you where to place your hope. Science cannot tell you, you've probably been told, like where to find meaning in in your life or in in, in your existence. You've probably heard it in maybe your RS lessons science explains the how, um, religion gives you the reasons why. And I think that's not true. I think the more and more we learn from science, from psychology, from biology, the more we do understand the reasons why humans behave and think in the ways that they do because we are natural beings living in a natural world. We're subject to those natural processes. For example, Christianity may lay claim to this exclusive truth that God loves every individual or that we should love our neighbor. Lots of other cultures before Christianity and lots of other religions that never encountered Christianity have the same beliefs as well, because religion is a human construction. It, it's not got a divine basis.
4: Thank you. So that leads us quite nicely on, actually. One of the points that Sarah made was that your ethics, for example, the belief in human rights, can't really exist without a foundation of divine authority or something transcendent, which gives these obligations an authority. How do you respond to that?
1: So I think you can attempt to do that philosophically. You can look at a pre-Christian philosophy, such as Aristotle, who argued that all human beings have an end to some extent, but it's a, na- it's a natural end that all human beings want to flourish. They want to be successful. They want to live in harmony. Aristotle says that is what we all want to achieve. Aristotle's philosophy was then Christianized by Aquinas and others in the medieval period. But the idea that human beings have goals and ends and desires and they want to be happy predates any kind of Judeo-Christian culture. Equally, if you then look into the sort of early days of the Enlightenment, the philosopher Immanuel Kant, the German or Prussian philosopher, tried to separate religion and philosophy and ethics in his critique of pure reason and other texts and argued that, yeah, there is universal reasons why we should treat human beings with dignity and respect, because we are rational beings capable of understanding how to live. I'm being a bit facetious there, as Sarah knows, because Kant also defended theism, but I think you can make a An argument that Kant was quite successful in taking God out of of ethics to some extent.
4: Thank you. Would you like a a a quick reply for perhaps a Mm. minute or two?
2: Yeah, I'm trying to argue from a deeper level. So, for instance, can you reason? Yes. Can you can you form ethics as an atheist? Yes. But I'm trying to say at a base level underneath that, where does the ability to reason come from? So, if we're only just a physical thing, why is it that our minds can transcend the natural order to actually think around it? So, I'm saying I think the best cause level or fundamental reason for rationality comes from God. Just in terms of making a comment on ethics, I think that we can organize ethics as a secular thinker. Like, for instance, utilitarianism can say what is going to bring about the most amount of happiness for the most amount of people. I'm going to make this argument to finish with I think if you strip away God, you cannot enforce that every life matters. You, you cannot ask the world to follow something dogmatically if you strip him away and you say, let's just organize our ethics. I think you have to have some sort sort of authority to that, like an obligation, human value to come from something deeper. So I think if you take away God, yes, by all means, we can organize some ethical decisions. We cannot enforce it on our world if you tell the world There's no ultimate meanings and purposes because that's where the authority in it comes from.
4: Thank you. So turning to you now, Sarah, couldn't people's desire for meaning, purpose, and hope be fulfilled either through other religions or through perhaps serving others or politics or what have you? Why does it need to come from Christian theism?
2: Okay. Good question. Okay. Uh, I want to be very clear. Can you have some forms of happiness without a belief in the God that I'm presenting to you today. I think, yes, in a temporary and limited sense. And what I mean by that is I'm gonna link it to the cosmological argument. whereby, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the word contingent things. A contingent thing means something that's needy, dependent, it has to rely on something else. Now, anything in the physical world is contingent. So you and me and everything physical, it has a temporary time. So I'm saying to you, if you reject something that's infinite, you have to place your hope in something temporary. And I'm just gonna tell you today my argument. I don't wanna find my greatest level of joy in something that can be taken away. Yes, my family are important. Yes, my friends, I love them. Yes, there's things I absolutely enjoy. I have hobbies that I absolutely adore, but they are temporary. So I can have some forms of happiness. I cannot have the deepest level of meaning if I strip away The necessary being, the necessary being who created everything is the deepest level of hope. And I do believe that Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, most reflects that heart of God in a way that I don't see in anything else in any other worldview.
4: Thank you. To respond to those two points, one is that you need God for eternal significance. And then also that Jesus
1: best reflects that heart of God. Yep. Just very quickly, completely disagree. I think it's the temporiness. It's the fragility of your existence that gives your existence meaning. If you're lucky, you will live for what? 80 years, 90 years in good health. You will, maybe you'll live for longer. If you, hope, hopefully you do. If you have a family, if you have a job, if you have a life full of meaning and value, your achievements will th- and your genes will then be passed on. It's the temporariness, it is that random fact that you did not choose to be born and that you exist here and you could not exist, that uniqueness that there's nothing else afterwards, that finite nature that you are gonna live and you will die, just like billions of people before you, that is my reason for getting up in the morning and valuing every single day that I exist. Not that I think I'm gonna go somewhere else after I die. That's what gives my life meaning and purpose and why I love being alive.
4: Sarah, any response to that? Mm. This idea that the fragility of life gives it meaning, gives yeah. it special?
2: Yeah, and I do mean this respectfully. Thank you so much for your responses. But I do hear words like hope, lucky, maybe. Hopefully some of these things pan out. Let's, you have to almost reject the future to enjoy life now. And I'm just going to say there's a pastor that passed away this year. His name is Tim Keller. He was somebody that has written a lot of books on these kinds of topics. But one of the points he makes, and I'm very convinced about it is, when you actually have peace for the bigger story, then you can actually live better now. So I'm gonna insert instead of happiness, the word joy. So if I find my peace, my meaning, my purpose in the big story of why I'm here, it actually means I don't have to get all of my happiness out of things that are these contingent things. It means that I can enjoy them for what they are. So we're entering into the Christmas season. I'm sure that all of you are looking forward to a break and a holiday and those kinds of things. I'm just going to say, do you see if you don't have the bigger story? Then those things just have to be what they are. You have to get everything out of it. You have to get your happiness out of it. But actually, do you see if you've got peace in the bigger story? Then you can enjoy them for what they are and they don't have to be your everything. Why? Because you've got something deeper and that's your source of joy.
4: Thank you. My next question is, Neil mentioned a number of areas where traditional Christian views are at variance with modern views, for example, about sexuality and abortion. And I wondered how you might reply to that, Sarah.
2: Yes. I really want to reply to this because as I've said, you guys are so motivated for justice. And I think brilliantly, you want to see that people who've been oppressed aren't mistreated. You want to see all of those things. Now, I'm just going to tell you that I believe there's a false accusation circulating. And that false accusation circulating is that Christianity is dangerous and that it is actually holding us back from freedom. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because if you strip away, if you take away the idea that every life matters, like the Judeo-Christian worldview teaches, you're made of my image, every life matters, What is your basis for telling the world to believe you in your justice issues? So if you say no ultimate meanings and purpose, Christianity is not true, there is no objective truth, there is no mind independent morality, then tell me why I should believe you. Why should I live my life a particular way? And so I actually think the Judeo-Christian worldview enhances what you're searching for in justice. Now I'm gonna tell you the name of an author, Tom Holland, Who has written a book called Dominion? Now, in that book, he's actually saying, until the Christian worldview spread, we did not have half the concepts of justice that we have today. Christendom has largely inspired hospitals, charity work, thinking about people that are oppressed. Now, I know that we've had an issue raised around, let's say, women's rights or sexuality, but Tom Holland is actually saying, it's actually quite strange because, ironically, Christianity is the only worldview based on the idea that there is individual intrinsic worth. So when you're actually trying to protect people from oppression, it's actually a deeply Christian value. So I would actually say Christianity inspires our fight for human rights. It is not dangerous and it is not trying to take them away.
4: What do you make of that, Neil? The uh, the idea that Christianity inspires and in fact has inspired, to go to the Tom Holland point, a
1: belief in human rights and a belief in justice throughout the centuries? I think it can do. If you look at Martin Luther King, who fought for black civil rights in America in the 1960s, King is famous for being a Christian Baptist minister. He had personal religious experiences, etc. but he also worked alongside trade unionists, communists, socialists. The person who organized the march on Washington alongside King was an atheist. I d- this exclusive claim that Holland and others make that Only Christianity can provide that sort of respect for your fellow human is deeply disrespectful to people who don't hold that worldview. Malcolm X was a Muslim who worked to provide black people rights in in America. He wasn't Christian. He wasn't Judeo-Christian. He was a radical Muslim. I think to argue that social justice and social progress only come about as a result of a Judeo-Christian worldview is a deeply disingenuous position to, to hold and i would argue i wouldn't say it's dangerous but i would say certainly that restricts progress and it restricts women's rights to access healthcare, and therefore it's wrong
4: thank you we do have two minutes left but Can you I- respond to sure yeah go for it
2: okay So I'm actually, just back four weeks ago, I was in Ukraine. I got an opportunity to speak in a range of settings across six cities in that country. And we obviously know how their human rights are being impinged upon with the conflict in that nation. Um, I'm very personally, my favorite topic is actually human rights and justice. And I'm traveling into certain spaces because I'm I'm really motivated by that. And I want to acknowledge what you're saying. Do you have to be a Christian to do good or to advance human rights I'm going to agree with you that I believe you can have another worldview and do good things. Atheists can do good things. And sometimes I'm actually cheering them on. If they're trying to fight the social injustice, then I'm actually like, let's do that together. That's not the argument that I'm making. The argument that I'm making is what is the best foundation or fundamental explanation of human rights? And I'm just saying to you, I don't think that we get authority to tell the world to believe one particular view if you say there is no ultimate reason for us to live. If you strip that away, if you say that we're not individually made in God's image, I think if you take away these tenets, you fail to convince the world of there being objective truth. On the one hand, our justice movements are saying there's no objective truth, Christianity is wrong, but then they're coming behind us saying, but this is what you should believe which is it? Is there truth or not? Because on the one hand, we're being told not to believe in truth. And then the next minute, we're being told what the truth is. I think Christian theism is consistent and coherent with the world that we live in and the justice that we seek.
4: Thank you very much. So we'll move on now to questions from the audience. Does the lack of evidence mean that for God's existence mean that he doesn't
1: exist? Thank you, Alex. That's a really good question. I think what I said was that you just don't know. You can't prove it does, you can't prove it doesn't it? It's, if you're looking for uh, physical evidence, you're not going to find it, because we're talking about a being that's non-physical. If um, Sarah mentioned somebody called Richard Dawkins, who is uh, probably the world's most leading atheist, um, in his book, "The God Delusion," even Dawkins acknowledges that there is a, what he calls a sort of scale of atheism. And Dawkins says, because he believes in the scientific method, that uh, it, this ceiling comes open right now, and God is so offended by what I've said this afternoon that the ceiling comes in and this being or this voice comes out of heaven and says, Neil, I'm really cross with you and what you've said, right? I would change my mind if there was evidence, if there was proof, I would change my mind. But the majority of humanists and atheists would just say there is no way of proving something beyond the physical world that we inhabit. And therefore, to me, it's just something I just can't answer the question. Thank
4: you. Have we got any other questions? Quite a few. Would you like me to repeat the question? Yep. So there's a couple of different threads to that question. One is that science is backed up with evidence and is straightforward. Another one was that why does suffering and conflict exist if we're made in the image of a good God? Is that right?
2: don't know if you've heard of this book. Some of you will study it maybe at A-level. It's called The Karamazov Brothers, written by Dostoevsky. He was a Russian author. He himself was quite outspoken against the regime, so it's not controversial to mention him. There's a character in that story, Ivan, Ivan, who says, if there is this great God, why would he allow even one innocent child to suffer? So I'm just going to say to you that it can seem very difficult, and I think it is difficult to see if God is there, and it is good, that trilemma. Why has he allowed the world to be the way that it is? Now, I'm going to say that is a difficult topic, but I also will say there's been so much work in theodicies that's defending God, but not only defending God, offering a reason why God made the world that he did. And I actually think because God was faced with a choice. Think about it. If God makes world A, right? No suffering, no evil, nothing can go wrong. In this kind of world, there is an enforced order. Everyone is forced to follow God. You have no choice. You're forced upon him. So he actually is faced with a choice. Does he make world be that enables us to go away from him? If God is good and perfect and we can walk away with him, we can walk into evil. So I think he's created a world whereby he's allowed us to choose evil rather than him actually forcing that on us. So I will argue that point. If there is no God, then evil and suffering is part of the natural order. So why are we even philosophically debating it? Because if there's only evolution and natural selection, the weak die out, the strong survive, that is suffering. Why would we be debating it? It's part of the natural realm. It only actually makes sense that it is a problem if something has gone wrong. And to me, you need a world of meaning to actually say that suffering is a problem. Thank you. Next question. Is this for Sarah? If miracles
4: happened so often back then, presumably in the Bible's times, then why don't they happen today?
2: And <laughs> think it's, it's important to firstly establish what we mean by miracles happening a lot in the past. If you actually look at the stories in the Bible, there, there wasn't an expectation that all the time chaotic things would happen. In the Christmas story, when, for instance, Mary claims to have seen an angel she reacts in a way that you and I would. It talks about shock, fear, what is happening. This is not the local angel that just pops in for a cup of tea in her worldview. This is something that doesn't normally happen. So even in the Bible, there is exceptional times when it seems that the God of the universe steps in and does something. It's not actually natural that every day you have something supernatural happening. Now, in today's world, obviously sometimes Christians or people with religious experiences are claiming at times God steps in. Often he doesn't, which I actually think is comparative with the past and the experiences of those characters. But I actually think that beyond just these exceptional times, there's something else that God is actually saying is available every single day. And that is his presence. So it's not that he's chaotically changing up the world. He's actually offering himself to you in relationship that can be a daily experience of your life. And sometimes maybe he intervenes. Often he doesn't, and actually that's consistent with what the biblical picture is.
4: Thank you. I think I just want to say on behalf of St. Michael's, thank you, Neil, for coming. Thank you for your eloquent speech and your sincerity. And thank you so much, Sarah, for exactly the same.
3: Well, that was a lot of fun, and unlike real school, there's no homework attached, so everybody wins here. Plenty of thoughtful questions for Christian apologist Sarah Stevenson and secular humanist Neil McCain. We do hope you enjoyed that debate, but who convinced you? Let us know. Thanks so much to Aylesbury Youth for Christ. And don't forget to sign up for the Unbelievable newsletter for a chance to win this month's prize book. And do consider donating to the show. We're launching a new stream of content created for younger people, and we cannot make these shows without you. You can find details of how to support the show and much more at premierunbelievable.com. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks for listening to Unbelievable, as always, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. Until next time, from me, Andy Kind, and the team, goodbye.